Hear that? Believe it or not, summer is just around the corner. Luckily, Armorall, America's most trusted auto appearance brand, has what your car needs to get that perfect summer shine. Plus, now through May 31st, we'll give you $5 for every $20 you spend on Armorall products. That means car wash pods, protectant, tire shine, you name it. Find out how to get your $5 rebate at Armorall.com. Armorall, less work, more clean. Terms apply. Big stories, big guests, the big picture. Afternoons with Rob Breckenridge. Weekdays 1230 to 3, 770 CHQR. Well, welcome back. Welcome to this hour. Rob Breckenridge with you here on this uh, Thursday afternoon. 403-974-TALK is our number. And uh, yeah, it is uh, the one-year anniversary of the declaration of this pandemic that we are still stuck inside. It is another anniversary today, though. It was uh, 10 years ago, March 11th, 2000, uh, 2011, uh, that an earthquake struck, a tsunami struck in uh, Japan, leaving thousands dead, hundreds of thousands uh, having to flee. It also crippled the Fukushima Daiichi power plant. And what was uh, certainly described as the world's worst nuclear disaster since Chernobyl. And I suppose it's, it's accurate to describe it that way. It would be, I think, unfair in many ways and inaccurate to, to compare it to what happened at Chernobyl. Uh, but it did certainly show some vulnerability when it came to a nuclear plant like this and what could happen in the midst of something unprecedented like this, a major earthquake and then an enormous tsunami. So certainly one of the takeaways uh, from the situation, rightly or wrongly, was that maybe we should uh, be concerned about or have second thoughts about nuclear power. And as we've been having a conversation over the last decade about where we get our electricity from, what kind of a focus we want uh, moving forward, uh, it seems as though nuclear power has, has become less and less a part of the conversation. But did we reach the wrong conclusions or learn the wrong lessons from what happened? Now, look, certainly at the time, there was some really dire predictions about what was going to happen. You know, David Suzuki famously uh, told an audience in Edmonton that uh, it could be bye-bye Japan and everybody on the west coast of North America would have to evacuate if another earthquake were to strike there. And a lot of concern about what could happen to the West Coast. But a study a few years ago from Simon Fraser University found that BC's coast never suffered any adverse effects from the disaster at all. Which is obviously not to say that it wasn't a disaster. I mean, it certainly was. But joining us uh, for some further thoughts on uh, what happened 10 years ago and what lessons we should draw from it. Very pleased to welcome the program here this afternoon, Doug Saunders. He's a columnist at The Globe and Mail, theglobeandmail.com. And a really interesting piece this week on how the world took away the wrong lesson. From the tragedy of Fukushima, Doug Saunders, great to have you with us here this afternoon. Welcome to the program. Hi, Rob. Good to be with you. Yeah, look, I mean, no doubt, as mentioned, this this was a disaster. Certainly, you look at uh, the, the number of people dead, the number of people evacuated, all of the effort that went into containing and cleaning up the situation at, at Fukushima. So, clearly a, a disaster. But as we reflect on what happened 10 years ago, what, what do you find in, in much of the commentary? Well, as you say, the, at the time... There was this notion that this was um, this was a this was a Chernobyl type disaster, and it was certainly you could call it a limit test of nuclear commercial nuclear power. It was the very worst possible nuclear reactor. It was one designed by General Electric in the early 1960s to be 
much cheaper than other reactors that by the early 70s the u.s department of energy had said they should stop building because it was too dangerous and in fact they did stop building it was built in the very worst way in the worst place it was built on a tsunami prone coastline when they built it in 1967 they uh, ignored the instructions to build it 30 meters above sea level and said they built it 10 meters above sea level and it was operated by an electrical authority that the Japanese parliamentary inquiry found was incompetent that had not designed even the minimum uh, safety standards or responses for the reactor. So you had the worst reactor in the worst place operated by the least competent people, um, saved by the staff on the ground, I should say, who often were quite competent once the emergency came. Uh, and it was struck by the worst seismic event Japan had experienced in 300 years. And what was, what was the outcome? Well, this week, we got a new report from the United Nations Scientific Committee on the Effects of Atomic uh, Power, who, who are scientists who investigate uh, uh, effects of radiation events. And it found that, the, the first of all, the total deaths caused by radiation were zero. And second of all, that the adverse health effects to the people who live in the Fukushima uh, prefecture, Fukushima County in Japan, was zero. There had been no increases in radiation-related illness or in cancers and so on related to radiation. So even within the area immediately surrounding the reactor, there were no radiation-related deaths in this worst possible incident. Now, there were deaths, uh, but they were caused by the evacuation, which was panicked and, and badly organized, and something like 2,000 people died, mainly like seniors who uh, lost access to oxygen and things like that. So that, that's worth noting. Yes. So zero deaths resulting from from radiation exposure, acute radiation exposure. There's there's also the question too, and you address it in your column because you know one of the concerns about a situation like this is sort of the longer term impact, right? That you know the exposure to radiation could lead to increases uh, in cancer and cancer deaths. But but have we seen that? No. Now Chernobyl was a different event. Chernobyl was a, was uh, a really severe radiation leak in a device that does not exist in the world now, which, was, which is, which is uh, a reactor without any containment. Um, and there definitely were measured increases in cancers related to radiation uh, among possibly thousands of people related to the Chernobyl disaster in the 1980s. The Fukushima disaster in 2011, however, they have found no increase in any form of cancers. And that's among the people who live in the immediate area of the reactor, um, largely because the radiation blew out to sea. There definitely is no chance of any radiation having reached anyone anywhere else in Japan, uh, and certainly not being carried by ocean currents uh, across the Pacific, as, as you know, some people falsely claimed was possible at the time. It was never considered possible that uh, a radiation leak. I mean, I mean you know, we, sh we should be concerned about uh, the operation and regulation of nuclear reactors and putting people in, in danger and so on. But we have to keep in mind that the long-term health dangers related to the radiation release of the worst possible meltdown scenario in a seismic event were zero. Um, if, by comparison, there had been a hydroelectric facility there or a hydro dam, the deaths would have been... Uh, you know, possibly in the thousands. If there had been a gas or coal plant in the area, 
well, it would it, the disaster itself wouldn't have caused deaths, but the long-term increase in mortality caused by the emissions from those plants would have greatly exceeded, uh, you know, even what came out of Chernobyl. I'm not particularly a nuclear power booster. I think I think it's a it's a it's an expensive and um, um, and not necessarily the best power generating solution in all circumstances. Um, but the Fukushima incident did give us the wrong lesson. We came around thinking that something terrible had happened related to radiation. In fact, there had been a terrible disaster that killed 18,000 people in Japan, but uh, but zero uh, harm caused by the radiation leak from the reactor. Right, which is important. Look, so, you know, as far as worst-case scenarios go, and, and as you say, um, you know, the, the, where this plant was located, how it was being run, all, all of those those things suggest that, you know, that, that a lot better planning could have occurred uh, around uh, how and where and, you know, this plant was built and operated. But as far as worst-case scenarios go, that doesn't sound so terrible. And yet, certainly, it seemed the lesson coming out of this was, was something much different. And it, it led to a lot of what maybe we would call knee-jerk reactions when it comes to nuclear power in, in a number of countries. Look, this, this was this was a moment in 2011 when a lot of the world had started to realize that um, we needed to act fast to keep uh, rising atmospheric temperatures under control, to keep uh, to keep the rise in atmospheric temperatures below two degrees Celsius over the next 50 years, and the main cause of that, the number one source of the carbon emissions that were causing that, was electrical generation through fossil fuel sources, through through coal uh, especially. Uh, and that although alternative energy sources such as wind and solar hold promise in the future, those don't work unless you have a backstop, something to generate power during the periods when they're not producing any, which if you're not going to be producing a lot of uh, CO2 output is going to have to be either hydroelectric or nuclear. So a lot of countries are going to need to have the very expensive and, and not very efficient option of shifting to nuclear power. And just the worst thing happened after the Fukushima disaster, which is that a lot of the plans to shift to nuclear as a climate change solution in many countries were halted because of voter fears of uh, of what they thought about Fukushima. Japan immediately cancelled all nuclear reactor plans and not renewed them. Germany, two months after the Fukushima disaster, Chancellor Angela Merkel uh, said that by 2022, Germany was going to shut down all nuclear reactors, leaving Germany still today highly dependent on coal as a generating source. Um, and a lot of other countries more quietly uh, canceled plans to, uh, to shift to nuclear. Um, so there's been a cost in terms of uh, mitigating and, and, and slowing the effects of uh, atmospheric warming uh, as a consequence of our fears about Fukushima, which it turns out were, were based on a misunderstanding of what happened there. An important point. We'll leave it there. Doug, uh, it's mentioned your piece. It's up at theglobeandmail.com. Thanks so much for making some time for us here this afternoon. Really appreciate it. Great. This. Thanks, Rob. All right. Cheers. Uh, that is Doug Saunders, uh, columnist uh, for The Globe and Mail, theglobeandmail.com. And yeah, I'd encourage you to read his piece. Ten years ago, the world took away the wrong lesson from the tragedy of Fukushima. So, yes, this could have been a better design plant, built in a better location, built at a, a higher level. And despite all of that, the worst case scenario happened. 
uh, an earthquake like this, a tsunami like this. So all of that combined, and what was the result? No radiation deaths, no meltdowns, no major radiation leak, no increase in cancer, nothing. So why did the, you know, the entire world almost start stampeding away from nuclear power? Okay, you can make an argument that nuclear power is expensive or it's expensive to build these plants. What do you do with the, the nuclear waste? You know, long-term, those kinds of questions. Sure, there are legitimate conversations to be had around nuclear power. But to point to Fukushima as an example of, of something just doesn't make sense. So, yeah, I think Doug Saunders is bang on. We did take the wrong lessons from Fukushima. Certainly, Japan could have taken some lessons. Why did we build that plant there and build it in the way that we built it? But to also take a moment and reflect that despite all of that, given what happened, that was a pretty good outcome. So I think part of the problem is that we've taken the number of deaths that occurred from the earthquake, the tsunami, the evacuation, and we just sort of lumped it into what happened in Fukushima, but nobody died as a result of what happened at Fukushima. Got a text here. It says, can we please stop the hysteria around Fukushima comparing it to Chernobyl? First of all, Chernobyl was a horrible disaster because of a deplorable safety record unique to the Soviet Union. Such a thing would never happen anywhere in the world, especially the West. 19 years after Chernobyl, only 50 deaths were attributed to the, uh, to the radiation there. Yeah, I don't know if you've watched the, the miniseries Chernobyl, and, and it's a pretty chilling account of what happened there. And yes, it was definitely a, a, a Soviet system problem, not a nuclear power problem. So you can argue that, that Fukushima was the worst disaster since then, which again is technically true, I suppose. But you compare what happened to Fukushima, you compare what happened to Chernobyl, it's, it's no contest. And yes, part of the story is that the incredibly over-the-top things that were being said at the time including the the bye-bye Japan remark uh, from David Suzuki, who later said he, quote-unquote, regretted the comments. Never apologized, never retracted. You know, for somebody who's supposed to be a voice of science, a voice of reason, he was more, and maybe, he's, maybe he is, maybe that's who he is, a, a voice of hysteria. Uh, but he certainly was at the time. So the idea that somehow, you know, the west coast of Canada was in danger and all of this, it was, you know, it was even obvious at the time that that was nonsense and was proven wrong through the course of events anyway. So as mentioned, a private member's bill has been tabled in the Alberta Legislature Bill 213 uh, to raise the speed limit on divided Alberta highways from 110 not to 213, by the way, that would have been a good fit for the bill, but to 120. So from 110 to 120. Uh, and again, so there would be some discretion, as I understand, for the Minister of Transportation. But um, basically, divided highways would be the criteria, because right now that maximum is 110. So joining us to talk a bit more about uh, this private member's bill is the MLA who has brought it forward. Uh, Cyril Turton is the MLA for Spruce Grove, Stony Plain, member of the UCP caucus. Mr. Turton, great to have you with us here. Welcome to the program. Well, thanks a lot. Thanks for having me on. So tell us a bit more then about why you felt that this change was necessary and why you brought this bill forward. 
Well, yeah, I mean, great question. So my riding of Spruce Grove, Stony Plain, being on the suburbs of Edmonton and, you know, thousands of my residents are traveling on divided highways um, into Edmonton and around the province on, on a daily basis. And I think all of us have experienced uh, that angst when you're on Highway 2 and you're traveling, for example, between Edmonton and Calgary, and, you know, you're in the middle of nowhere, and all of a sudden cars are blowing past you at a higher speed limit. And so mm-hmm. I really started to question about, are the speed limits on divided highways here in the province matching the actual design criteria, what those highways are designed for. And so that's really a main reason why I wanted to bring forth this bill. I wanted to align the speed limits that Alberta drivers are already driving to the actual limits of what the highways are designed for. And so that's why I wanted to to put this bill forward to look at increasing the speed limit on provincial divided highways outside of urban areas up to 120 kilometers an hour. Now, there's some key parts of this bill that I liked uh, in terms of allowing the discretion and confirming the ability of the Minister of Transportation to be able to lower those speed li- lower the speed limits if required, um, if there's you know issues with safety or, or something along that lines. And so I think, you know, in terms of the, the safeguards that have been put into this bill, it's a common sense bill. When you see that highways, for example, in B.C., like the Coquihal is at 120 kilometers an hour, interstates down uh, in many states in the United States yeah. is already at higher limits. Uh, I think this is, um, you know, a, a well-received bill. I know the response I've been getting has been pretty positive, and I'm excited to put it in the legislature. Yeah, it's interesting. You made the point, and I want to come back to it because you're right. There's a lot of discrepancy now on on those highways, Highway 2 in particular, uh, those who are doing the lower limit, those who are going faster. So you, you looked into this question then, and, and so part of the, the objective here would be to almost better synchronize than drivers. So this would be one way of perhaps reducing those gaps as you see it. No, absolutely. I mean, when you're, uh, and I know this is a common case because everyone has experienced this, but when you're driving down the highway and you see someone going at a different speed limit and all of a sudden you have cars uh, zigzagging in and out of traffic because now there's larger discrepancies or variances in speed limits, I mean, that's a, that's a large hazard. And so my goal was really, uh, since, you know, the 85% of drivers seem to be driving at that higher level anyway, so if the highway is designed for that limit, Anyways, why are we arbitrarily setting that speed limit lower? I'm trying to tighten up the variance between the different drivers on the highway. And so, mm-hmm. um, you know, I, I think there's a huge safety implication by doing this. I think it will actually stop that zigzagging in and out of traffic. And, and given the, the, you know, geography of Alberta, I mean, we're mostly a prairie province. Um, you know, you could see a gopher from 25 kilometers away. I, I think this bill is going to be uh, fantastic, you know, and, you know, here in the province. So... So do you think then the, it would mean people would be overall driving faster? There's a concern, I think, and I've seen it from some people, that, well, you know, people are more or less driving 120 anyway. If we raise the speed limit and people are sort of conditioned to going above it, now all of a sudden it means everybody's going 130. What do you make of that? Well, I've seen a number of stats or um, reports in the United States that shows that, you know, people will drive at the speed limit that they're comfortable at. And uh, even, for example, when you see um, the Coquihalla, anyone that's driven there in B.C., you don't see people automatically driving faster. They drive at the speed limit to the road conditions based upon their own skill levels and abilities. And I think that will follow true here as well. So I don't automatically think that it's a a slam dunk that people will automatically go up to the higher speed limit, but it's really based upon the realization this is where the majority of Albertans are now so why are we senselessly I think penalizing them um, for the speed that the majority of drivers on our divided highways are already driving
Now, you mentioned that this would not affect uh, freeways within urban areas, which, and I guess maybe the, the Deerfoot and Calgary would be an example of that. But, of course, both Edmonton and Calgary have ring roads, which are essentially divided highways. Uh, would, would those fall into this, or are those considered within urban areas? What about the two ring roads? Yeah, so great question, and I've been asked that you know quite a bit over the last uh, day or so. So, because those um, two freeways are located within the city of Edmonton, city of Calgary, respectively, they wouldn't apply under this uh, particular okay. piece of legislation. Um, but obviously, it would start those conversations, and and I think, and that's really what I'm hoping to do is is also create the more long term conversation. Is that our you know are the speed limits right across the province um, designed or matching in, in what the roads are actually designed for and so um but that's a, a more of a, a down the road conversation i, I you know I, i'm looking forward to having but in terms of this bill itself it would not apply to uh, those two freeway systems located in edmonton and calgary so where does this go from here you, you tabled the bill just this week then is that right Right. Yeah, that's correct. Just yesterday. And so uh, in terms of the process, it has to go to the private members committee first for review. Um, so they have a couple of days uh, on guessing and assuming that there's going to be some stakeholders that they're going to be asking to come in, uh, subject matter experts. And then the committee will have to make a recommendation if it ha- if this um, the private member's bill has their support or not. And then at that point, it will come up to the legislature for, um, for the legislature to either accept the recommendation from the kid, or committee or to, uh, to go against the recommendation of the committee. And then, um, you know, hopefully there's enough time in this spring session that we could see this all the way through to the end. I mean, there's always the, the, the threat, I guess, with private member's bills that we may run out of time uh, to actually have it go through all the different steps of the process. But I'm doing everything in my power to make sure that um, this gets the attention that it deserves. I, mean, I know from the conversations that I've been you know, hearing right across the province, I, I think this bill is uh, extremely well-received uh, from the comments I've been receiving. It's interesting, and it's tough to know with, with private members' bills. I mean, on the one hand, you know, it's like, well, if the government supported this, they'd be doing it anyway. But at the same time, I mean, ultimately, if it comes to a vote, you know, people have to have a say. So... You're optimistic that this would have support then? Yeah, I mean, obviously I can never um, assume what the legislature is going to go for, but I know from the support, um, you know, and the supportive messages that I've received from other MLAs, I, I know that it has been extremely well received. And, uh, you know, for for especially many of the rural MLAs, I mean, um, on many of these divided highways, and we're talking specifically Highway 16 or Highway 2 or Highway 1, um, you know, 63 to Fort McMurray or, or perhaps 43 to Grand Prairie, I mean, there's a low population uh, densities in those areas. Uh, like I said, you could see a gopher from 25 kilometers away. You have great visibility. Um, there's already a buffer put in there, an engineering buffer, and how these highways are already constructed. And I'm just simply trying to align the speed limits that people are already naturally driving and and these highways. And so um, the, the important and crucial part of this is that it's not an Alberta bond blank check going up the speed limits. I know some people are concerned about that. We're talking about a reasonable 10-kilometer increase on some of the safest highways we have here in the province. So this is the equivalent of, you know, if someone was running down the sidewalk, well, that's 10 kilometers an hour in essence. Like, that's the speed difference we're talking about. So when people think of it in terms of that context, it's not scary. And uh, the question I'm getting all the time now is, is why wasn't this brought forth earlier? So...
By the way, a few people have texted. I, I wonder with regard to commercial vehicles, because some are, are regulated, you know, or, or held to either 100 or 110. Does that affect this at all, or, or how do you see that factoring in? Well, at any point, uh, any driver can operate a vehicle at below the speed limit. And so I know many uh, transport companies, like you said, are capped at 100 or 105 due to fuel efficiency standards or, or a whole host of different uh, company-specific policies. So, But um, it obviously wouldn't affect them. But we're talking about the majority of the commuter traffic uh, that happens around this province you know, moms and dads driving the minivans or the pickup trucks around the province are obviously going to be able to uh, know that, you know, that they can actually drive at the speed limit that they feel comfortable and knowing that the road is actually designed for that. So, um, you know, I'm sure everyone's going to have to review this. There's a, an important part in this as well as the two-year limit. So I, I put it or added into the bill that um, if it is, does pass the legislature and is ratified, that there's a two-year uh, timeline in terms that the Ministry of Transportation can then start the review. So I didn't want to leave it completely open-ended, but I also wanted to put a bit of a deadline on it. And so two years, I think, is, uh, is an acceptable amount of time for the ministry to be able to review all the highways that could potentially be affected right around the province, allow that in-depth consultation with municipalities and other stakeholders if they want to put a uh, maybe keep the speed limits a little bit lower in certain areas. And I look forward to having those conversations over the next couple of years, if possible. All right. Well, we'll uh, keep an eye on this again. It's Bill 213. If uh, folks want to follow its progress, uh, Cyril Turton, thanks so much for joining us here this afternoon. Appreciate it. Thank you very much. All the best. That is the MLA, the UCP MLA for Spruce Grove Stony Plains, Cyril Turton. And uh, it is his private member's bill, Bill 213. That proposes to make this change. So, I mean, clearly he's put a lot of thought into it, and that that's good to see. I think uh, you know this should be a, a a good, frank, open debate around around this. I think there's some good arguments for it. I think there's some legitimate concerns that have been raised. All right, here we go. Welcome to the Tower of the Program. Rob Breckenridge with you on a Thursday afternoon. 403-974-8255 is our number, 974-TALK. Got some time for your phone calls coming up. As mentioned, after 2.30, should the speed limit on Alberta highways be increased, a private member's bill has been tabled that would do exactly that. We'll hear from the MLA behind that private member's bill. That's coming up after 2.30. Off the top of this hour, they wanted to have a conversation around minimum wage, and there's been a lot of conversation around minimum wage in recent years. There's been this push to get to $15 an hour, which is uh, what Alberta's previous government brought the minimum wage to. This current government made some changes to that, though, and did bring in a separate uh, minimum wage for students. Certainly, this has been a big issue still in the United States and the push for 15 so there are those questions that, that, sure, in theory, raising somebody's hourly wage means more money in their pocket. But what are the consequences of that, though, for other workers or for hours worked or for benefits? And ultimately, is this an effective poverty strategy? So there are a lot of questions around minimum wage increases. There's also a question, too, of, you know, if, if individuals are not in minimum wage jobs for long, does changing the minimum wage actually help low-income earners? So this new study from the Fraser Institute uh, today takes a closer look at that, that question in terms of whether this is the best way to help low-income households and how long individuals are in minimum wage jobs. 
joining us uh, to talk more about uh, this new research and how it should maybe shape the debate around this uh, policy issue going forward. Very pleased to welcome to the program here this afternoon, Philip Cross, who's a senior fellow at the Fraser Institute, FraserInstitute.org. Philip, great to have you with us here this afternoon. Welcome to the program. Thanks for having me on, Rob. So, look, I mean, much has been said, obviously, in, in the minimum wage debate. And there's been plenty of research on, on both sides in, in all of this. But in terms of, of understanding, I guess, that, that question, too, about how long uh, individuals find themselves in minimum wage jobs, what, what more do we still have to learn, I think, about all of this? Well, evidently a lot, because as you noted, mm-hmm. uh, uh, Alberta just went to $15, Ontario just went to 14 The Democratic uh, House of Representatives tried to raise the federal minimum in the United States just uh, a couple weeks ago to $15. So, you know, evidently this message that uh, higher minimum wages don't do a very good job of targeting poverty, uh, in fact, they might even hurt, is not getting through. So it's a message worth repeating and uh, relearning the lessons from all this. Right. So as I said, I think this this adds some important context to the conversation because we tend to think of this or it's billed as an anti-poverty tool. And maybe on the surface, that seems logical. Minimum wage is kind of the lower end of the wage scale. So therefore, yeah. those earning it must be in poverty or, or close to poverty. But even even right there, there's there's something I think that, that should be noted because not everybody who earns minimum wage is in a low income household. Yeah, that's one of the problems. In fact, the majority of people working minimum wage are, in fact, young people, especially teenagers, uh, who, in fact, are living with their parents and living in very comfortable circumstances. So that's one of the reasons why when you raise the minimum age, you don't have a, a uh, you're not targeting low income, is that a lot of people earning minimum wage aren't in low income. But you can also flip it around and look at it, you know, who are, why are people poor in this country? And um, Ron Kneebone, a professor at University of Calgary, made the very interesting observation that most people in this country who are poor are poor because they either don't have a job or they can't work enough hours to lift themselves out of low income. And so, you know, uh, raising the minimum wage is not helping those groups. Uh, it actually makes uh, it harder for the unemployed to get a job because employers are going to cut back after the minimum wage rises. And they're also going to cut back the hours of uh, their least productive workers. So, uh, you know, the, you sell the idea of minimum wage that it helps low-income people by selling this profile that the typical minimum wage earner is a 35, 40-year-old waitress who's been working at her job for 10 years. And very few people, minimum wage workers, actually fit that profile. Uh, the vast majority of people who work full-time uh, you know, after a few years, they're earning more than minimum wage anyway. So you're not really, uh, it's very good politics, but it's very bad economics. It doesn't target the group that you want to help the most. Yeah, and it's an interesting finding in this this study because, you know, on the surface, it seems logical that, that someone who's earning minimum wage is not forever going to, to earn minimum wage. People get, get raises at their jobs or they gain experience and work their way in, into better jobs. So... Yeah. The number's actually low, isn't it? For for those who earn minimum wage and, and do so for five years or more, it's a very small number, isn't it? Only 1% of people who uh, have uh, have been working for five years and who started at minimum wage are still at minimum wage after five years. 
that, uh, in fact, minimum wage jobs are a very good entry-level job. That's one reason kids like them a lot. It's a way of demonstrating in the labor market that I'm a responsible person. I will show up. You know, I won't steal cash from the cash register. Uh, I will have show the basic characteristics. And that's really what a lot of employer, all a lot of employers are looking for. And if you can, if you can show that that you have the basic characteristics of responsibility and a willingness to work, you'll start earning more than the minimum wage very quickly in our world. So, uh, uh, in fact, by raising the minimum wage, especially when you raise it sharply, like Alberta did, uh, in fact, you're you're cutting off those entry level jobs and making it hard for people to get their foot in the door, and and that ends up lowering their earning profile for years. Yeah. Yeah, and that's the thing. And I, I remember working those kinds of jobs. And I mean, I got young people in my household. My daughter who recently just turned 18. She started a minimum wage job. And that's the thing. If they raise the minimum wage, I guess if her hours stay the same, that that's good for her. But why why are we helping her? She she lives at home and in a middle class household. So it's, it's hardly an anti-poverty strategy to give my daughter a raise. And, and as you mentioned earlier, I mean, there, there's a lot of people in that, that scenario. So even if we do end up helping those that fit that stereotype, we're helping a whole lot of other people who aren't really in need of government help. Uh, very much so. And that's, uh, you know, we all start out, I think, at, at entry-level jobs. I mean, I remember when I was at university, I, I worked in, you know, parking lots and, you know, all kinds of minimum wage jobs. And I was thrilled at it. It, it was, you know, it, it proved, I proved to myself that I, I had value, that I could succeed in the labor market. Uh, so, you know, entry-level jobs have a really poor reputation in, in some segments of our society. But if you think it through, these are really important to uh, helping especially young people get started and get their confidence. And uh, we end up just cutting off those jobs because employers, uh, you know, those are the first jobs they're going to cut back on when their their total costs increase. But the other problem that, you know, I think we're going to have to deal with this more in the future is that it's an easy way out for governments. They can kind of mm-hmm. ask businesses, they, they tell businesses, well, you're going to achieve these social goals for us. It would be much more efficient for governments to directly pay uh, low-income people and raise their standard of living that way. But instead, they're asking business to do it for them. And when you ask business to do achieve your social goals, it's surprising how sometimes it backfires, and businesses cut back in, in, in other areas to control their costs. So they hire fewer people, they lower non-wage benefits, and you end up not achieving what you wanted to achieve. If governments want to achieve something, they're going to have to spend the money themselves. Well, that's just it, right? I mean, if we want to target the poor, we can target the poor. And yep. you know, there, there are very simple and straightforward ways of doing that. Uh, exactly. That- that the governments could do if they were so inclined. But it gets back to the point you made earlier as well, that, that ultimately, you know, there's a need for jobs and, and there's a need to, to work enough hours at a job to make ends meet. And we, we should be careful, shouldn't we, that if there's a possibility that a certain policy is going to have unintended consequences, like costing jobs or, or reducing available working hours, we should proceed with caution, but it seems in this march to $15 an hour, we've kind of thrown that caution out the window a little bit, haven't we? Yeah, and as I say, I, I'm worried that we're going to, that's going to continue because, um, you know, you and I would agree that it's best if government 
just set money or or subsidize the wages of low-income people. That's the best way to help them, target actual low-income people. But governments, you know, particularly after the pandemic, they're not going to have the money to do that. So I'm afraid they're going to have increasing recourse that that they're going to do something like the minimum wage on the grounds that we're helping low-income people, even though it doesn't really help low-income people. But you can go to unions and so on and say, well, look, you know, we tried to help. We don't have the money. We can't afford to do anything ourselves. So, uh, you know, the the pressure for these types of policies has grown even even if, you know, we saw during the pandemic that the, the jobs that were most at risk were low-wage, minimum-wage jobs in restaurants and hotels and so on. And so why you would, those are the industries that are hurting the most, why you would try to raise the cost of labor in these industries by raising the minimum wage is beyond me. But, um, you know, get, you look at government's track record of doing the sometimes the right thing at the wrong time, and, you know, that's what they're good at. Yeah, no kidding. Some important points uh, in this debate. The minimum wage, lost jobs, and poverty in Canada is the study uh, FraserInstitute.org. Philip Cross, appreciate you joining us here today. Thanks so much for this. My pleasure. Thanks for having me on, Rob. All right. All the best. Philip Cross, a senior fellow with the Fraser Institute. And that, that's an important point, too, as we think about how the debate has changed coming out of this pandemic. The hotel industry, the restaurant industry, or maybe we, we think of a lot of these kind of entry-level minimum wage jobs. These industries have, have taken a pounding. And are we going to turn around and, and demand that they raise their wages? Is that really going to help? That seems like a risky strategy. Again, look, there, there's a need to tackle poverty in this country. And there are a lot of different ideas and approaches for how to do it. But there should be more of a consensus that this is an ineffective way of doing it. Look, if, if government takes the approach that we're just going to give money to the poor, we're going to top up. Wages for the poor, for the working poor. It's easy enough to go in and and find those people. And here's who's going to get it. It is objectively true that a lot of people who earn minimum wage are not living in poverty. So does it make sense to take an across-the-board approach to say everybody who gets minimum wage needs a top-up as part of an anti-poverty strategy? Because not everybody who earns minimum wage lives in poverty. And for that matter, not everybody who lives in poverty earns minimum wage. So a teenager who lives at home and earns $15 an hour is not living in poverty. Somebody who is that stereotypical single parent struggling to make ends meet earns maybe $16, $17, $18, $20 an hour is still living in poverty. So $15 an hour for somebody, $20 an hour for somebody else can be completely different. So it's, it, it misses a lot of people, and it includes a lot of people who shouldn't be included. So any kind of an anti-poverty strategy that misses the mark that badly should probably be off the table, or at the very least kind of way down the list of priorities. But it is easy for governments because you stroke of a pen, you tell businesses to do it, and you're done. You don't have to do anything else. You pat yourselves on the back and you wash your hands of it. And you let the uh, you know, businesses figure it out. The one way they might figure it out is to reduce hours or not have as many positions or reduce benefits or increase prices. So all of those kinds of unintended consequences equal bad news for workers, especially low-income workers. 
Thanks for downloading and listening to the podcast. Don't forget to subscribe, rate, and review for free at Apple Podcasts, Google Play, or wherever you find your podcast. You can also find me on Twitter at Rob Breckenridge. You can email me, rob at 770CHQR.com. Talk to you next time. Afternoons with Rob Breckenridge, starting at 1230 on News Talk 770 Calgary.